what's I think the most interesting is that we see very similar responses in these muscular characteristics uh, between low intensity blood flow restriction training as we do with traditional high intensity training. So lifting 80% of one repetition maximum, for example, which is heavy and hard to do. Um, it's mentally draining as well as, as a physical challenge, but uh, we, we can see particularly muscular development, muscle size, uh, hypertrophy, that seems to occur to about the same magnitude whether you're using light weights with BFR or heavy weights following a traditional bodybuilding type regime. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from Murdoch University is Dr. Brendan Scott. Welcome, Brendan. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So today's a little bit different from the Metagenics Institute podcast. We've, we're going to look at exercise. Um, we haven't touched upon that as a dedicated uh, podcast before, but as we like to do in the theme of this podcast is look at some emerging or some maybe um, less well-known research. And um, Brendan's here today to talk about a quite a novel but powerful intervention, which is called blood flow restriction training. Um, so before we jump into that, Brendan, maybe you can just give us a bit of an outline of your background. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm currently a senior lecturer um, at Murdoch University in the exercise science program. Um, so I teach into the undergraduate degree around resistance training, sports science units, functional anatomy and, and things of that nature. Um, but I also have a, a pretty large research component to my job, which involves doing research, working a lot with research students, so honours, masters and postgraduate students, uh, with, with most of our research really focusing around resistance exercise um, for athletic populations, developing athletic capabilities, but, but also uh, as you mentioned, Nathan, with blood flow restriction, um, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about, has applications not only to athletes or healthy people, um, but but also to a, a range of clinical populations, people who experience weakness and, and frailty. Um, so we're looking at blood flow restriction from a range of perspectives in resistance exercise as well as in some aerobic modalities. Yeah, yes, yeah, fascinating, and we'll certainly dive into that. So before we get into the, the, the type of training there, um, I thought I'd just Firstly, open the question like, um, what is the benefit of resistance training or indoor building strength and muscle mass outside of yeah, elite sports people or professional bodybuilders, etc.? Um, what's the the benefit to the I suppose the average Joe and and maybe yeah, as you mentioned, some of the um, patients who are experiencing um, health conditions. Yeah, that, that's a, a good point. It really gets to I suppose the crux of why we do exercise. Um, in, in my opinion, particularly as we age, it's all about maintaining and optimising function, improving quality of life by allowing people to still be strong enough, have enough muscular power, um, and, and really just the functional capabilities to perform tasks of daily living. So we know that sarcopenia, the age-related loss of muscle mass, um, costs the Australian healthcare system billions of dollars. It's very difficult to quantify exactly, but latest estimates are around a couple of billion dollars. And um, and due to falls and things of that nature as well. And in America, it's been uh, rated at closer to 18 billion, of course, got a much larger population. So 
when we start thinking about just that's only the financial cost. Of course, there's changes in quality of life that come come around and, and social societal uh, complications with, with older folks not being able to maintain their independence. It's, a, it's an enormous problem that needs solutions and, and exercises. I'm sure this isn't new to you or any of your listeners. Exercise is, is pretty powerful in maintaining people's capabilities as they age and, and improving them as well if, if they're in a deconditioned state. So, so it's really about increasing the capabilities of, of the um, muscular system as well as the cardiovascular system to, to some extent to, in my opinion, enhance quality of life as we age. Absolutely. Um, probably one <laughs> question I didn't give you notice about. Um, have we learned recently, we being scientists, not me, but has science been uncovering like signaling molecules that come from muscles that have systemic benefits? Uh, in terms of muscular growth, are you getting at? Oh, or, or just um, having adequate muscle mass, like the myocons. How does having adequate muscle mass, other than um, strength and function, does it have systemic benefits? Does it release hormones or cytokines that confer more global um, health benefits? Potentially. Um, that's getting outside of my area of expertise <laughs> a little bit. But, but what, what we can say for certain is that, that muscle mass is very metabolically active tissue, right? And so... Uh, if we can have a larger contribution of our whole body mass coming from the, these active tissues like muscle mass, um, then things like regulating like glucose levels become a little bit easier. Um, and, of course, that has, has implications for, for those with diabetes. So, uh, yeah, uh, of course, it's not just about producing force and how quickly you can produce force. Um, there, there's a range of other, I guess, biological functions that, that improving muscle mass can have. Beautiful. All right, so let's have a look at this um, blood flow restriction training. It's um, yeah, quite a peculiar modality. Um, probably not many people have heard about it, but it has a, a fair body of evidence. So um, first of all, maybe um, can you describe the, what it is and maybe the, um, touch upon the origins of where this was developed from? Yeah, of course. Um, so as the name suggests, blood flow restriction, uh, we're, we're trying to change hemodynamics, trying to change blood flow characteristics during exercise, or, or some researchers even using this at rest for, for brief periods of time. Um, now, uh, maybe, maybe I'll go back and tell the story of, of how this was actually uh, first developed. It was by a, a guy called Dr. Sato in Japan uh, in the mid-1960s, and he's actually written a, a scientific paper about this, explaining how he came about this method. But the story goes that uh, Dr. Sato, when he was a younger man, was kneeling down in a, in a prayer hall, um, for an extended period of time, and he started to notice that his calves were becoming um, pumped up or swollen with blood flow that was trapped within the lower leg, a um, little bit tender, a little bit sore, and he sort of thought, this feels like when I do calf exercise at the gym. So he, he started trying to investigate this a little bit more by just wrapping anything he could find that he thought would be suitable, so the, the bike tyres and things like that around his legs and, and trying to restrict blood flow, doing exercise to chase that same sensation he, he found in the gym to see if it would have any benefits. And he actually tells the story of at one point he, he took it too far, um, had difficulty breathing, went into hospital and had given himself a pulmonary embolism, which is, of course, <laughs> not a good idea. Um, uh, continued on with his, his development of the technique, um, and now it, it, it's most widely used in Japan compared to other regions around the world uh, where it's referred to as katsu training, which basically just means added pressure. Um, and and the, the basic technique is to apply thin cuffs to the top of the arms or the legs, depending on what 
exercise you're doing, uh, almost like a miniature blood pressure cuff that you'd normally right. take um, a, a basic blood pressure assessment with. Um, and the aim is to increase the pressure in these cuffs so that we reach a point where we're still allowing blood flow into the limb. So we're allowing some arterial inflow. It will, of course, be somewhat restricted, as the name suggests, but some's getting in. Um, but we're occluding venous return. And we can do that because, well, we know that, that arteries are a much more robust structure compared to veins. They have a thicker muscular wall. They're often deeper in the limb. Um, so it's hard to, you have to exert a lot of pressure to clamp down and completely occlude arterial flow, whereas venous flow is a little bit easier to stop. So by doing that, we're, we're allowing blood into the limb still, um, but a slightly diminished amount. So that's causing a, a localized hypoxic environment, which will become important when we maybe chat about some of the mechanisms of why this might work. Um, but by occluding blood back out, we get that swelling response that, that Dr. Sato talked about originally. Um, as well as trapping um, metabolic byproducts in the limb. And, and these are all getting towards why we think it, it works. So it's really about changing blood flow characteristics during exercise. Uh, and for the most part, the exercise we do is very low intensity. So that, that's why this is probably a, a novel technique that, that's gaining some attention is because we can lift really light loads. I'm talking 20 to 40% of one repetition maximum. So one RM being the, the heaviest load you can lift for a single attempt. So this is lighter often than you'll even do a warm-up with if, if you're training right. in the gym. Um, or you can walk at a very slow pace on a treadmill or ride a bike at a very slow pace. Uh, exercise intensities that in years gone by we didn't think were powerful enough to cause any changes in physical capabilities, development of muscle tissue or enhancement of muscular strength or cardiovascular fitness. We, we used to think that we needed heavy loads for that high-intensity uh, aerobic exercise. So that's where blood flow restrictions kind of change perspectives on adaptation to exercise in that we can now upregulate the physiological demands by altering blood flow um, to make exercise, which is really physically not that challenging, still cause an adaptation. So, so that's, I suppose, a, in a nutshell, what BFR is and how it was developed. And that was um, in Japan, was it like in the 60s or 70s? It's been studied since then? <laughs> Yeah, so it was first developed in, in the 60s by Dr. Sato. I think he was a bit of a bit of a renegade in those days because he yeah. was told by, by many doctors to stop what he was doing, so it was potentially dangerous. And that's, of course, something that, that often comes to mind when people are discussing this with medical practitioners. Um, but the, the research really kicked off in the, the late 90s. So the first paper published in English, at least, was in 1998. Um, and the, every year since then, the, there's been a raise in the research attention that, that BFR is gaining. So there would be thousands of, of papers published on the technique now. Wow. Okay, let's have a look at, yeah, as you mentioned, some of the mechanisms. We'll get to in a moment, like the effects on strength and hypertrophy or, or muscle size. It, it seems pretty clear that it helps there. Um, the The question I have is how does it work? Is you, um, Using such a, a light load, um, you're including the muscles, uh, but also it seems to have effects on the muscles both um, past or, or distal to the um, band and also proximal beforehand the band. So like say if you're doing um, a bench press, you've got it around your armpits and yet your pec, pec muscles can um, receive the benefits even though they're not occluded. So, um, yeah, long question, but how does it work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the key question, isn't it? Um, so we've got a bit of an idea. Uh, about some key physiological things that happen when we change blood flow characteristics during exercise. But 
Um, I suppose as any scientist will tell you, we, we don't have the complete picture yet, but I'll do my best to explain what we know at, at present. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, we, we have this slight decrease, not complete occlusion, but a decrease in, in blood flow to the limb and to the muscle, muscles that are working sort of downstream uh, or distal of the cuff. Um, so of course that creates the, a hypoxic environment, makes the exercise more anaerobic. We, we, we shift metabolism from, from a aerobic um, method to more anaerobic or increased reliance on anaerobic methods. Um, so this increases what we often refer to as metabolic stress, the accumulation of metabolic byproducts from anaerobic glycolysis, particularly hydrogen ions, which is effectively um, creating a more acidic environment within the muscle. Um, and, and this does a, a number of things. So this more acidic environment basically makes muscle fibres fatigue faster. So they, the few muscle fibres we've initially recruited to perform a low-intensity exercise fatigue, and they can't continually be recruited during the exercise. So we have to recruit more and more, or more muscle fibres than we normally would for lifting right. that load. So there's a greater portion of the muscle that's then stimulated and has to adapt. Uh, another important, or we think is potentially important, or needs, it needs further research though, is the cell swelling response that uh, Dr. Sato really first noticed. Um, it, it just by allowing blood into the limb but not back out, we're going to, of course, cause a limb and a muscle cell swelling response. And this has been measured uh, as has the, the metabolic stress and the fibre recruitment patterns I just mentioned. Um, and there's some, some thoughts around as well the accumulation of metabolites inside the cells changes the, the, the pressure gradient of, of these substances, internal versus external in, in cellular space, and so that draws fluids into the cell, further driving the swelling response. And it, it's hypothesised, been shown in a, a couple of other cell types, that when you swell a cell, um, it, it, the cell perceives this as potentially a threat to its integrity and begins to initiate some processes to reinforce its structure. So in the case of muscles, that um, been theorised to be muscle growth to, to develop these cells to be a bit more able to tolerate stress. Um, now, we get a big increase in some hormonal concentrations, systemic hormones, particularly growth hormone is the key one. Ah. An early study actually showed growth hormone increased 290 times baseline as a patient about 2000 um, for, uh, when low-intensity BFR resistance exercise was done. But uh, we, we don't actually think that that plays a huge role in the hypertrophic response anymore. Some good work's come out in the past decade that shows that, that muscle hypertrophy is a, an intrinsic process. It, it occurs driven within the muscle cells themselves as opposed to um, being largely influenced by external factors like systemically circulating hormones, like growth hormones. So some good work has come out of uh, Professor Stuart Phillips' lab in McMaster's University in Canada um, that's really almost debunked the, the growth hormone hypothesis as a primary driver of, of uh, anabolic responses to any sort of exercise. Um, whether or not that's interesting or not to, to your listeners, I'm not sure, but it's a little bit of a tangent I've gone on no, there because yeah, we used to absolutely. think that was an important response, whereas now we're, we're not so sure. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, we also see, led, uh, leading on from the hypoxic environment, that seems to trigger an increased activation proliferation of satellite cells which we know are important for the hypertrophic responses. We don't know exactly the mechanism of how those satellite cells respond to the hypoxia, but that's been related before. And effectively, all of this is uh, resulting in increased muscle signaling for protein synthesis. So the um, mTOR pathway, which is the master regulator for, for building muscle protein within muscle cells. And of course, if we grow our muscles bigger, we have 
uh, a, a greater chance of being able to produce higher force, more cross bridges being formed in, in the filaments that make our muscles contract. Um, to, so we have a larger muscle that's able to exert more force. So that's what we think is at play. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. So let's um, transition now to the, I suppose, clinical benefits. Um, and uh, just to reiterate, so the the um, the subject puts the bands around so the their upper thigh or their armpit and performs like traditional sort of resistance training at a, a much li- um, lighter weight than they historically do if they were go to the gym and do sort of say three sets of 10. Um, now they've done a lot of research comparing the two types, the traditional strength training versus the uh, low-intensity blood flow restriction. So can you describe um, the populations they've tested and the, and the effects on strength and, and muscle size or hypertrophy? Yeah, of course. Well, I might just before I get to that, I might quickly go back and answer the second part of your question, which I okay. want to do around the the uh, effects upstream of the cuff. Ah, um, uh, yes, yes. The, the bench press example, because that's an interesting one. Um, so, so there yeah. are a couple, a couple of studies that have shown increases in, and, and as you use the bench press example, yeah, that's where the research is um, in this space. So, a pec major. Um, tends to develop where you wouldn't think, or it's not under blood flow restriction. So, so why would that be the case? Um, why would that be benefited by doing exercise with BFR? Uh, and what we think is that because the, in an exercise like that, where the triceps are a sort of supporting ex, uh, muscle um, to aid elbow extension, the pecs being the primary uh, driver of, of the bench press movement, that the, the triceps will fatigue more rapidly, as I mentioned before, meaning that the pets have to pick up some of the slack um, and, and potentially ah. do more work than they normally would have. Um, so we've actually seen with EMG analysis, so uh, looking at the electrical activity in the muscle, which gives a representation of uh, the level of, of activity uh, in the tissue, um, that the, this is increased when the pe- a, a bench press exercise is being done with blood flow restriction, although the pecs aren't under that restriction. Um, and something else that may be playing a role is I mentioned the swelling response, so the fluid's being trapped downstream of the cuff. Um, there's also potential, although this hasn't actually been assessed, uh, for blood. It, it all can't get into limb, of course, with that restriction. There might be some pooling upstream of the ah, cuff okay. as well, which yep. could be resulting in some of those responses. So, yeah, it's an interesting one, but one that definitely needs a little bit more study outside of the, the bench press exercise. Um, sure, sure. And I suppose that, that, that that's important for clinical pops getting to your, to your more recent question there because we don't want to just be able to train limb muscles in isolation. Doing bicep curls and knee extensions is good for developing the size and strength in those isolated muscle groups. But in, in my opinion, uh, we, we need to train functional type of movements or, or activities like sit-to-stands and, and, or the squat or deadlift hip hinge type movement patterns. So picking shopping bags up off the floor after you've, you've opened the door with your key so you have to put the, door, the, the shopping bags down or something like that. They're the, they're the types of things that would really benefit functional capabilities in, in clinical pops and older folks. Um, and so it makes sense that we need to, to drive BFR forwards in that space. Um, and so you, you talked about, or you asked a question about what sort of populations is this being used with, um, there's a lot more attention being focused now on uh, older people using blood flow restriction because the theory is we can get adaptations to exercise using very low intensity, whether that be the weight or cardiovascular activity. Um, and, and many older people have a, a range of particularly orthopedic issues uh, 
that preclude them from doing high-intensity exercise. So it's it's pretty rare to find someone in their mid-70s that hasn't had a bad back or doesn't have a dodgy knee or, or something like that. So we can still get adaptations we would like to see from high-intensity resistance exercise, um, but without having to stress the, the mechanical structures of, of their limbs or their joints or um, overload previously perhaps not completely recovered injuries. Um, so th th there's a, a lot of work being done in that space now, which, which seems promising. We, we tend to see the same responses you've mentioned just before. Pretty much always we see increases in muscle size and strength um, over the, the uh, low intensity exercise without BFR. Uh, and what's I think the most interesting is that we see very similar responses in these muscular characteristics uh, between low intensity blood flow restriction training as we do with traditional high intensity training. So lifting 80% of one repetition maximum, for example, which is heavy and hard to do. Um, it's mentally draining as well as, as a physical challenge, but uh, we, we can see particularly muscular development, muscle size, uh, hypertrophy, that seems to occur to about the same magnitude, whether you're using light weights with BFR or heavy weights following a traditional bodybuilding type regime. Um, there's, there's some evidence that the muscle strength is optimized to a greater extent by lifting heavy loads, which makes sense considering that a lot of improvements in strength come via neural adaptation. So synchronizing motor units more correctly, learning the technique, turning off antagonist muscles and, and driving more complete recruitment of the whole pool of, of motor units in the primary muscles. Um, these neurological adaptations, uh, we know are potent following high load exercise, but don't seem to occur, or at least not to the same magnitude following low load blood flow restriction exercise. Um, so that if we think back to the mechanisms that we we're just discussing, I, I didn't explain really anything around uh, neurological adaptations, perhaps aside from the acute increase in muscle fibre recruitment, uh, but that's really due to the metabolic environment, not sort of a, a central driver or a change in, in um, the, the neural response or neural control of exercise. So although there's benefits for muscular strength, it's best developed uh, if we can lift heavy loads, but of course that's not always possible for, for older people or, or people with a, a, a range of different conditions. So um, people suffering from ACL reconstruction is, is one area where, or an ACL injury that, that's had um, surgery, reconstruction surgery, it's one area where there's a, a number of papers published now looking at using light loads with blood flow restriction or even just the normal type of rehabilitation activities um, and seeing enhancements in, in the rate at which people are returning to function, returning to pre-injury levels of strength and, and muscle size. Um, there's also there's some other other case studies around people with Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis. I've seen actually you sent me the the, the paper um, in the prep for for this podcast. I hadn't seen that paper. It's an interesting one looking at improvements in uh, gait in, in walking abilities with with folks who who are suffering from from multiple sclerosis. So a, a range of clinical populations that really require some benefits in terms of their physical capabilities to enhance quality of life but aren't able to physically tolerate very vigorous training. But there's there's a scope for blood flow restriction in those cases. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where it's got really good potential with those um, clinical conditions, osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, uh, where they're unable to lift heavy loads. Um, so Another question I had is around the uh, com comparable to the tr traditional resistance exercises yeah. on like um, connective tissue and bones. Uh, you know, there's 
um, the recommendations are to do weight bearing size for for bone mineral density and the view about heavier resistance training helps like tendon strength and integrity do we see any benefits using um, blood flow restriction on, on connective tissue and bones yeah so the the connective tissue one's an interesting an interesting issue in that there was one study published a couple of years ago um, that found no benefits I think it was teletendon um, no benefit for, for BFR, although there are benefits for high-load exercise. And if we think about what blood flow restriction does, it's, it's decreasing blood flow, obviously. And, and well, we know that, that connective tissue doesn't have the same blood supply. It's not as vascular as muscle tissue. So by altering blood flow, it, you probably wouldn't expect it to have the same magnitude of effect on, on connective tissue versus muscle tissue. Um, but there, there is some, some evidence of improved, uh, as in the uh, calcaneal tendon, the Achilles tendon, in, uh, improved uh, stiffness of the calcaneal tendon, which is an adaptation we tend to see from high-load exercise. And it's important to, in, if we think about high-performance uh, activities, things like sprinting and, and jumping, that there's a lot of elastic energy stored within that, uh, that connective tissue that, that's then used to produce force moving forward. So um, there, there is some, some potentially positive results recently around the connective tissue. Um, although there's, I think, more work that needs to be done in that space because this is something I, I wrote about a couple of years ago, actually, that if we have a, a rapid increase in the size and the strength of our muscles without the same increase in the capabilities of the tendon, well, perhaps we're increasing risk of, of injury around the musculotendinous junction specifically because we have now a, a motor, a muscle that can produce more force than uh, than the, the body of the car can handle. Um, so I, I think some some cautions warranted around that. And for that reason, I, I mean, I, I'm i a researcher in blood flow restriction. I find it amazingly interesting and it's turned on its head some of the things we used to think about how we adapt to exercise. But I would definitely not say that this is a, a strategy for everyone to use and a, and a long-term strategy, even for those who get good results. It's overcoming heavy loads and being able to, uh, tolerate high mechanical stresses is something that we encounter in, in many tasks in our daily life or sports or whatever it might be. Um, so training for that is is important as well, I think. But blood flow restriction can sometimes help us get there. Um, now, bone that there's there's a, a little bit of evidence around some uh, acute markers of bone formation. Um, I've not read too much in that space, to be honest, but. I know that there's uh, there's some promise in that, but I, I'm not aware of any research that's actually looked longitudinally at, at changes uh, in bone mass or bone mineral density um, across a, an extended duration program. Um, of course, that would be important for older folks with osteoporosis, osteopenia, but uh, I, I don't think we have a, a wealth of evidence there yet to to really concretely say this is as good as doing load bearing act or heavier load bearing activity. Okay, great. Uh, and also, it has been studied probably to a lesser d- degree in doing aerobic activity, um, walking, yeah. cycling at a low load. So, yeah, can you um, describe, the, again, the adaptations and also comparisons to, again, whether it's interval training or just uh, steady-state aerobic training without um, blood flow restriction? Yeah. So, there's um, this is an area that I think is really interesting and will probably grow a lot in the next um, few years because... For older folks particularly, or people who are quite deconditioned or don't have an extensive training background, 
Um, we can see developments not only in cardiovascular fitness, so maximal aerobic capacity, a simple assessment, or field test, or it's a six-minute walk test. Um, we see improvements in, in that, but also in muscle size and strength, which you don't normally see with res uh, any sort of non-resistance exercise, so aerobic training. So that's uh, just going for a walk is potentially like a, a concurrent approach to developing a whole range of physical capacities that are important for, for people, um, particularly those, as I mentioned, that are, are quite detrained. So there, there's also some evidence around those type of adaptations in well-trained athletic cohorts. So there was a, an interesting paper published. It was in 2010, used collegiate-level basketball players um, in Korea, and they literally just walked on a treadmill up to about six kilometres an hour, if my memory serves. Um, and at the end of a, a couple of weeks of walking with blood flow restriction versus walking without it, um, these athletes who were already fit and well-trained, so, uh, when they used the blood flow restriction uh, stimulus, they saw almost a 12% increase in, in VO2 max in aerobic capacity um, and a 2.5% increase in uh, a Wingate test. So that, that's a, a test of anaerobic capacity or, or uh, effectively your ability to, to exercise over a very short duration using anaerobic metabolism primarily and, and sustained performance um, in the, the face of fatigue. So even in those well-trained cohorts, there seems to be benefits from what would normally not even be worth considering as a training stimulus um, from, a, from a cardiovascular point of view. So we, we also see, we've done a little bit of work on some cycling modalities of, of blood flow restriction, um, looking at some interval structures and also some longer duration of walking activity, although you don't want too long a duration because I'd uh, be concerned from a safety perspective about having the cuffs on for a really extended period of time. But from the acute uh, responses, you see things compared to the, the same exercise without blood flow restriction, uh, like increases in heart rate, increases in um, cardiovascular demand, so the, the, the oxygen consumption. Um, there's some evidence as well of a decreased cardiac output, which might be a little bit counterintuitive. Um, but if we think about what the blood flow restriction is going to be doing it, it's blood is pooling in the limbs. So let's say we're walking, blood's pooling in the legs. So there's not as much going back into circulation to be continually pumped around the body by the heart. Um, so the cardiac output itself can, can slightly reduce. Um, although there's, I mean, there's a few studies that show that both ways, but something to consider nonetheless. Um, but when we compare this to higher intensity exercise, more traditional unrestricted aerobic training, we typically will see that that results in higher acute physiological demand, so higher heart rates, higher cardio, uh, cardiac outputs, higher levels of, of oxygen consumption um, than the blood flow restriction, probably because the, the BFR is so peripherally limiting in that it causes that fatigue within the motor units or the muscle fibres, I suppose, themselves. Um, that limits force output, limits the ability to keep turning the pedals over on the bike. Um, so you're effectively changing what's the limiting factor from perhaps being right. a central thing to being more peripheral. So we don't see the same central uh, responses, if that makes sense. Yeah, fascinating. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, 
Thanks. It's a really uh, comprehensive um, discussion. There. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so let's move on to. Um, I, I'm sure probably listeners are worried, concerned about safety, and you probably have um, had these questions before. And um, the research continues to look at that. So yeah, obviously we're restricting the blood flow, um, which understandably people are concerned about um, blood clotting, um, pressure on the heart, etc. So can you describe um, some of the safety concerns and um, where the literature and the research is at with um, its safety, again, compared to, I suppose, traditional exercise? Yeah, of course. Um, so the, the first concern that most people, there's two key concerns uh, that most people will bring up. Um, the first is the clotting that, that you mentioned, and the second is muscle damage. That, that tends to come up a lot. Um, so with the, the clotting uh, the clotting responses, there's a couple of studies, not a heap. Um, uh, there's a couple of studies that have investigated this from a, an acute perspective, looking at markers of both clot formation and, and clot breakdown. We're, of course, in a, a consistent balance between forming clots and breaking them down in a normally healthy individual. Um, and no research has yet shown with blood flow restriction that there's any unfavourable responses in, in those acute uh, acute measurements. So, of course, we need longer-term data. We need bigger samples. We, we need uh, perhaps to extend this, because most of that's done with healthy populations, to some populations um, who we may see some of these things begin to manifest in to really understand if they're going to be a problem. But I, I think, and what most of this research concludes, is that because the cusserons for such a brief period of time, or, or of course, if we wrapped a tourniquet around someone's limb, <laughs> A completely occluded blood flow and left it there for two or three hours. Yeah, there's going to be clots and there's going to be big problems. Um, but short of a, a shaft bite, I don't think there's really a, a, an important reason to, to do that. We're definitely <laughs> not in an exercise context. Um, I generally say we're doing resistance exercise. The cuffs will only be on for around about four minutes at a time. So the, the typical protocol we'll use is light loads, like I mentioned before, 30, 40% of one rep max. Um, you'll have the cuffs on uh, around the top of the limb and you'll do four sets often. The first set with 30 repetitions, a 30-second rest period, then three sets of 15 reps. So the first set is longer because, well, you can do more in that first set because you haven't yet accumulated that acidic environment in the muscle so you can sustain performance. But you'll notice that sets two, three, and four become progressively harder just because you're not allowing any of those metabolites to come out of the limb. So it's, it's kind of a strange stimulus in that each set gets substantially harder and harder and harder. Um, but that, that whole standard protocol that's often referred to as only lasts uh, four to five minutes. Um, even in aerobic exercise, often it's used in a type of interval format, might be on for two minutes and off for one or two. Um, so it's often used for about five-minute intervals, particularly there's some, some research that suggests we can use blood flow restriction at rest. Um, so in cases of uh, ACL patients, again, um, they've used it in the acute phase post-surgery where patients couldn't actually do any movement, applied the cuff uh, with an interval structure, so five minutes on, five minutes off. Um, they did that three sets, morning and afternoon, uh, and actually attenuated a lot of the disuse atrophy. So in the absence wow. of contractions or, or any form of exercise, these participants lost less muscle, um, so had less to go back to when, when they were recovering. Wow. So that, that's something that, that's um, potentially interesting, particularly in athletic environments where recovery from injury and return to play, the time for that process is so crucial to a, a team's performance and to, to uh, monetary issues around a, a club. Um, 
so if we can return athletes faster because they effectively have less to gain back because they lose less muscle and strength, well, that, that, that's uh, beneficial. But that, the point I was getting out there, that, that's a five-minute interval. Um, I, the longest I've seen is 20 minutes uh, with, with the cuffs on. I wouldn't myself prescribe that. I'd always stick around the five to perhaps 10 minutes only in, in healthy individuals. So I think if, if we, we do that, um, with the, considering the, although it's, I'll acknowledge it's limited, but the early evidence around the clotting cascade um, doesn't seem to be as concerning as perhaps you might first think. Um, and something else that, that I'll mention here is we, we're applying a pressure, as I said, that's not going to completely cut off blood flow, arterial flow, mm. that is. Um, so we still do have some, some movement within the limb, and the exercise itself is promoting movement. So it's not like stagnant blood is just sitting there completely still in the absence of, of any movement, which, of course, promotes clots. So, uh, yeah, um, doesn't seem to be any evidence of, of um, aside from Dr. Sato's pulmonary embolism, of, <laughs> of uh, really bad things going on there. Of course, the ill events can happen in response to any form of exercise, sure. um, be that blood flow restricted or not. But it doesn't seem that it's a, at a higher risk with blood flow restriction. Um, and the muscle damage response is, is an interesting one as well. In the early days, or up until sort of 2012, 2015, we, we thought there really wasn't much measurable muscle damage, or, or there was, it was barely reported in the literature. Um, now, I can say from my own experience of using this that if you particularly have a, a couple of weeks off doing exercise and you come back and, and do some squats with blood flow restriction, even just body weight, you're a little sore the next day. Mm. Um, but that, that's a normal response to training. It, it's nothing to be afraid of. Um, there are a couple of case studies of rhabdomyolysis in the literature. Um, and that can happen, of course, in response to any strenuous activity. But typically these have been uh, – or it's hard to completely say this with confidence because not all the information is reported in these case studies. But some of the times when, when uh, this is reported, it's when participants have taken the exercise to failure, uh, which is one approach people use with blood flow restriction. So rather than the first set of 30, then three sets of 15, they might do three or four sets to muscular failure, which also promotes muscle size and strength and all those responses that we might from the outset think are beneficial. Um, but from my perspective, we're using blood flow restriction to try to decrease what we're asking participants to do um, by adding to the physiological demands and changing how we adapt to exercise. So it doesn't make sense in my mind to tell people they have to exercise to failure. You know, we're, we're trying to make exercise easy, then we're telling people to go until exhaustion. Um, so I, I don't use that approach in, in my research or, or prescribing it to, to people. Right, okay, yeah. Uh, but it has been used and, and I would see that potentially where things are, are going to go wrong. But if, if we control... The, the exercise stimulus, the loads we're lifting, the exercise we're doing, um, and the cut pressure, uh, so we're not completely occluding blood flow, um, then typically it's, it's relatively safe. And just as a little bit of an aside, to, to, to control the pressure really well, most of the time we'll measure the arterial occlusion pressure with a, a Doppler ultrasound device. So we'll actually uh, say we're going uh, for low uh, lower body blood flow restriction, we'll place the cuffs on, use a, a handheld Doppler device on the posterior tibial artery, gradually inflate the cuff until we completely occlude blood flow and we take that as our 100% or our arterial occlusion pressure. Um, and then we work at a, a percentage of that during exercise. So it might be 50, 60% of arterial occlusion uh, okay. pressure. So we're, we're, we're always confident now that we'll, we'll, if we implement those type of methods, um, not be occluding blood flow completely, which 
of course, would be dangerous if we just pumped a cup up to 300 millimetres of mercury and told people to go and squat without knowing much about how that's actually changing hemodynamics or the, the relative change that we can potentially expect, um, then that would not be wise, in my opinion. Okay. All right, well, that leads me on to uh, the next section is on equipment. So obviously you're in a, a research setting. Um, and there's different devices available online. There's some like the Katsu equipment, I think, maybe up to $1,000 and then there's some um, ones online that have like sensors for a couple hundred dollars and then um, people can also use or that has been promoted just using um, elastic cuffs which you adjust to your level of of comfort which we'll get to. So maybe can you um, outline some of the types of equipment and I suppose the the benefits and limitations of each? So... In a research environment, we're always really concerned with controlling the pressure and being able to implement something that's repeatable and reliable. So um, at Murdoch, we use a, a Hokanson rapid cuff inflation system, which is really uh, sort of a, a medical device used for um, testing peripheral uh, arterial flow and, and things of that nature. Um, but we use that because we know we can set a solid pressure and the device inflates within half a second and, and maintains that pressure. Um, but that system costs us, I think it was about 11000 Australian, and it's effectively just a, a big blood pressure cuff. Um, so that, mm-hmm. that's, of course, out of reach for, for most people and, and clinics and, and practitioners. Um, so th- there's a, a number of devices that have come on the market in the past couple of years, really, with a bit of a surge in interest in, in blood flow restriction that control pressure in a similar kind of way, of course, not as accurately as an $11,000 system. Um, but there, there's some, some systems where you can plug in uh, a set um, arterial occlusion pressure and apparently, although I, I haven't seen any data around the validity and, and reliability of these assessments, the, the systems can measure um, the pulse of, of the individual initially and then maintain the pressure at a certain percentage of that, similar to the arterial occlusion pressure assessment I was talking about before. Um, and so that that's a good way to go if, if you have the uh, that equipment available to you. There, there's also other systems that just use a, a handheld pump, like a, a normal um, sort of traditional manual blood pressure cup, although they're typically much thinner, these cups. Five centimetres in width for the upper body and maybe 10 to 15 centimetres for the lower body. Um, so you can, if you can do this arterial occlusion assessment to understand what someone's 100% is, then you can calculate the, let's say you're using yeah, 40, yeah. 50%, and pump it up with a handheld cuff. Lots of them, so we've got a system uh, that we use where uh, you can pump the cuff up and actually detach the bulb so the cuffs are much more comfortable. It's more user-friendly. You can get on a bike and not have cords banging up on yeah, your legs. Yeah. Um, but the, the cuffs hold their pressure really well. So I think the key is to have a good understanding of that arterial occlusion pressure so you can prescribe the pressure sub-occlusive during exercise. Uh, and if you have a, a solid system, then you're able to be confident that it will maintain that subocclusive pressure throughout the duration of the activity. Now, there was a, a couple of years ago, this was led mainly by Jeremy Lenneke, and he's done um, a lot of the BFR research. Uh, if you ever look up Jeremy Lenneke's research yeah, profile, yeah. The, the guy's done a bunch. Um, and, and he was working uh, a number of years ago on what he called practical blood flow restriction, which is using powerlifting knee wraps effectively wrapped around the top of the legs, top of the arms to, to cause the restriction in blood flow. Uh, and, of course, you don't have a pressure gauge 
within these powerlifting knee wraps, these elastic wraps. So you could just use perception of pressure. So uh, one to 10 scale with 10 being uh, as much pressure as you can tolerate, it's actually causing you pain. So it, it's uncomfortable. One being that you can barely feel the cuffs are on your legs. You'd wrap these to a seven. So moderate pressure, but with no pain. Um, and there was some early work that showed really promising results. So the metabolic stress markers were increased. We saw increases in muscle activation, changes in blood flow as we would want. So arterial inflow being um, reduced slightly, but maintained and venous return being included. Um, and so it looked like that was a good approach <clears throat> to use. But uh, more recently, their groups come out uh, with some evidence that suggests people actually aren't as reliable at perceiving that seven out of 10 as what you might think. So there's, there's probably right. a, a bigger amount of variance in the actual changes to, to blood flow um, than what we, we once thought. But one thing, uh, this is completely anecdotal from my own experience, is that what, if you've used blood flow restriction with systems that you can really tightly measure the pressure that you're after, so you can measure your arterial occlusion pressure, you can prescribe exercise at 80% of that, you know what 80% feels like, you get used to that sensation, I think it becomes easier to then go off perception. Um, and if I was to just put cuffs on, pump them up, I can sort of tell it about where, where I'd be um, based on the perception of pressure, I guess, I think, although that, that's, of course, not as scientific as running a full study on it, but I think it probably improves with time is, I guess, what I'm, what I'm getting at. So what, what sort of percentage pressure are we after? Is it you have to get close to that 70%? I, I thought I saw something from Lenneke, like even if you're between 40 and 80%, you're going to get potentially benefits from the, the blood flow restriction. Yeah, that 40 to 80% is the range that we typically uh, talk about because uh, although one pressure might not be better than the other, we, we haven't seen that. A few studies have looked at that and found no differences between using a higher pressure, still within that range compared to a lower pressure. Um, but pressures within that range tend to show us the favourable responses. We see the changes in muscle size and strength and the, the beneficial responses um, that we're chasing. So we tend to know or, or we think we know that the pressure within that range works whether or not there's a, an optimum pressure in there, that's yet to be really determined. But um, particularly in cardiovascular exercise, we're finding out from some pilot testing that it depends on the intensity of the activity. We're starting to do a little bit of work to look at higher intensity modes of exercise. So even doing repeated sprints with blood flow restriction. Um, so repeated sprint ability is super important for, for athletes. Say you think about soccer players, they're repeatedly um, having a, a very short burst of high-intensity activity and recovery and then going again. Um, and that's really developed best, that capacity is developed best by exposing the muscles and the body to a, an acidic, challenging environment that blood flow restriction creates. So we're looking to, to see if there's anything to use in blood flow restriction with much higher intensity modes of exercise, less applicable to clinical populations, of course. Um, but with these higher intensities, we're finding that you just can't physically do it with a high pressure. So I think there will probably be some sort of a balancing act that um, we'll determine over the next sort of 10 years or so between increases in pressure and decreases in exercise in intensity or vice versa. Um, but, yeah, it, it's within that range. I'd always err on the side of caution, particularly at the start of a, a prescription mm. program. Um, and also if it's for someone who's not used BFR before, um, if they are an older person or have some potential contraindications or, or other things to consider, then I'd always err on the side of caution, use a very light pressure because I'd much rather someone, you know, not get the full amount of adaptation they potentially could have got um, 
for the sake of improving the safety of the technique. Sure, sure. So for um, clinicians or, or even people themselves, well, yeah, what's the possible the options? For, I suppose entry level, like, would you consider just getting the the I don't know the thirty dollar bands on eBay or middle of the range or um, someone from a more serious clinical condition? You think about referring on to like an exercise physiologist? What's yeah your thoughts in you know getting started in this area? Yeah, so I I think um I think this this type of exercise, particularly with folks who have clinical conditions, should always be done with someone who has expertise in the technique and experience in the technique. So an exercise physiologist is, is the, the perfect person in Australia. Um, now, in terms of the equipment you use, that some of those uh, inflatable cuff systems with the handheld bulb that you can detach that I mentioned just previously, they're not that expensive. You can get those for a couple of hundred bucks for a set of okay. cuffs. Um, yep. Very different to the 11,000 for, for the Hokanson system we have. But yep, that's, yep. of course, an excellent system. Now, of course, you still need to buy a Doppler ultrasound unit, but there, there's some companies that sell them um, really quite affordably in in packages with these inflatable cuffs. So uh, it, it's becoming more and more popular in clinical environments. I've actually spoken with a, a bunch of exercise physiology or allied health practitioner clinics who have bought sets of cuffs and want to know more about how best to do it, what protocols to follow and when to use it, when not to use it, etc. Um, so I, I think it's becoming more affordable as Interest in the technique has increased, and, and therefore uh, people manufacturing things like this are, are starting to come up with new solutions so that the price is dropping. So if you're not familiar with the technique, uh, and particularly if you work with clinical populations, I wouldn't recommend using just the elastic wraps, particularly in light of, of uh, some of the recent work that shows people aren't as great at, at estimating pressure, mm. particularly when they're not experienced as what we once thought. Um, now, there are some prediction equations where we can take some basic anthropometric measurements uh, and measures of blood pressure. So you include things like systolic blood pressure, um, thigh circumference, uh, age and gender uh, into some equations and, and that gives you a, a predicted blood flow, uh, arterial occlusion pressure, sorry, that then you can then back calculate what uh, BFR pressure you want to implement. Um, and, and that's potentially an okay way to go if you're working with healthy populations perhaps. Uh, so you can just buy the cuffs with the inflatable bulb. You don't need to have a Doppler and you can predict what the arterial occlusion pressure will be and, and apply BFR safely. Uh, but again, I'd always uh, look to take the most robust approach to uh, measuring arterial occlusion and pressure with people who perhaps have a higher risk of ill effects. Sure. All right. Well, I'm about to wrap it up then. It's um, been a fascinating conversation. Uh, so... More um, casting the eye to the future. Um, well, what research have you got going on, or in the field? Where would you like to see, or what would you um, be surprised, or wouldn't be surprised if you saw research coming out in different and positive research in different disease states? What, what's sort of the horizon look like? Um, so, so I, we've got a bit of work going at the moment, looking at using BFR for for older people in the acute sort of learning phase of learning new exercises. So. You know, if you're if you're learning how to do sit to stands or squat to a bench or how to do deadlifts safely or step up safely, you're often using very very light loads and you don't adapt to those loads in terms of muscle growth, particularly, um, other than learning how to do it before you can then transition a heavier load. So we've got some uh, a study that we're halfway through running when the pandemic struck, so uh, we had to put that one on the back burner, but we're looking yeah, to get right. that running in the very near future. But the early results for that show that uh, just even with low volume. Um, 
just learning type of activities in these more functional movement patterns. We can see benefits in, in BFR compared to the non-BFR group for muscle strength uh, and also some functional measures, the four-square step test. And that was for individuals who were screened into the study on the basis of low strength. So they're, they're at a greater risk of, of a, a decrease in function in the next few years of their life. Um, so that, that's an interesting area. I've also got some funding for the next uh, five years from the, the NHMRC, National Health and Medical Research Council, um, to look at using blood flow restriction for older people walking to effectively try to decrease the amount of time that they have to spend exercising. So rather than increasing the intensity of, of exercise by jogging as opposed to walking, which allows you to do less to increase your cardiovascular fitness and decrease risk profiles for disease states, um, perhaps we can do a little bit of exercise, but with blood flow restriction and get similar responses to, to jogging. Um, that, that's going to be some of the work that we're working on over the next five years. Uh, also in a, so a sporting context, there's a lot of people starting to use it for more, more interesting approaches like the repeat sprint stuff I was talking about before using, uh, this during warm-ups to decrease pain in, in athletes who have specific mm. injuries. That, that's actually an interesting area in itself for clinical POPs too that I think will, will, will increase in its attention. There, there's some early evidence, a couple of studies showing that blood flow restriction decreases sensitivity to the pain. So, uh, a, a couple of, studies looked at folks who had um, patellofemoral pain and by just applying blood flow restriction during some basic step-up type of activity, uh, sorry, it was just knee extension off the end of the bench, <clears throat> uh, then going through a, a manual therapy session and doing some exercise, they could uh, do more exercise, they had less pain uh, and therefore in another study they showed that dropout rates were lower compared to higher intensity of exercise. Um, because of this decrease in pain as well as the, the decrease in stress on, <clears throat> excuse me, on the, the muscular and, uh, and joints, uh, the muscular system and the joints. So I think that's probably an, an, another area that will be exciting in the, the coming few years. Wow. So do you hope to see one day this is commonplace in clinics and gyms and people, you know, at home and <laughs> probably would have been handy in, in lockdown, I imagine, um, if we had like yeah. <laughs> access to this equipment and plus obviously you don't need as much um, equipment for the weights because you're obviously moving much lighter weights. Most definitely, yeah. Yeah, so one day you'd like to see in every home someone with um, blood flow restriction <laughs> equipment or something. Well, I, I'm not sure that I'd like to see it in everyone's home at, <laughs> at the moment. I, I, I still think we need more evidence around it. Yeah, yeah, in the future. Um, yeah. But I, something I really am hoping to see is a, a greater uptake <clears throat> with allied health practitioners. So uh, we're actually in the process of looking to put a survey together to understand more about what the barriers to using blood flow restriction are um, for exercise physiologists, medical practitioners, physiotherapists, trainers who work specifically with older people in clinical populations. Because if we can understand what the concerns are around why they're not, uh, this technique isn't always being used or perhaps isn't being used in situations where it may have benefit, then as researchers, we can look to address them and perhaps it's educational things like uh, your podcast here, um, getting information out and giving confidence to practitioners that they know how to prescribe exercise and how to do it safely. So I think that's really where I'd like to see this going is uh, becoming more commonplace <clears throat> with allied health practitioners, particularly those involved in prescribing exercise uh, for clinical populations. Yeah, perfect. So where could people find out more about blood flow restriction training? Is there any sort of a body or authority or, um, yeah, how can they 
yeah, get more up to date on on the research and the applications. Yeah, there's there's not any sort of national or, or international bodies that uh, that really put out information on on blood flow restriction. So that's something that we don't do super well as scientists is communicate our findings to mm-hmm. the general public or, or even to people who are practicing at the coalface and, and seeing patients. Um, so unfortunately, at this point, there's, there's no great resources that I could. Uh, put your listeners towards other than looking at some of the, the scientific literature. And there's, there's some good blog posts and things like that out there that explain this in simple terms. Um, although for every good blog post, there's probably two or three bad ones as well. So, mm. uh, yeah, unfortunately not, not a, a number of resources I can point them towards other than some scientific literature, which is, of course, expanding every year, as I mentioned before. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. We'll yeah, do some um, digging that the, the practitioners... Scott, it's been a um, fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your time and um, your expertise. Any final remarks on blood flow restriction training? Uh, I think we've, we've had a pretty comprehensive conversation. I think, I think we've, so. we've discussed most things. So th- thanks again for having me on, Nathan. It's been really interesting to talk about this and hopefully there's uh, there's some practitioners listening to this that may not have heard of the technique or have only heard about it in, in passing before and, and might uh, might spark their interest to find out a little bit more. So if anyone is uh, interested, I please I'm open as uh, most researchers to, to these conversations. Get in touch with me, um, and we can we can find out more about how it's being used uh, by practitioners as well as maybe give some advice on on good ways forward. Absolutely perfect. Well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for your time, and um, maybe we can connect again sometime in the future. Excellent. Thank you, Nathan. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.